Hello, welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. And before we return to our discussion of Homer's Iliad, I'd like to take a moment to answer a query that I've gotten a couple of times recently. I have mentioned during the podcast episodes that there is also an Expanding Eyes newsletter. And I've had a couple of people asking, well, what is this newsletter and where is it available? It's available on my website, michaeldalzani.com. At the bottom of the screen, there's a place that describes it and it's easy to sign up for. It's free. Both the podcast and the newsletter are a labor of love. The newsletter appears once a week, every Friday, and its theme is Imagination as the Home of Human Life. What does that mean? It can mean almost anything that I make it mean to give you a humorous but serious answer. The pervasiveness of the human imagination, just as one example, a different subject every week, depending on what happens to inspire me that week. The one to appear tomorrow, as an example, is on the theme of friendship and what the tradition of literature, religion, and philosophy make of the subject of friendship, which turns out to be quite a lot. And I welcome you there, too. These are both labors of love to me, the podcast and the newsletter, and I welcome all the company. We return to the Iliad at a crucial point, Book 16, A Turning Point. After a long period in which battle hems and haws and sways back and forth between books nine and book 16, book nine, Achilles refuses to return to the battle despite the pleas of his friends and the offer of gifts from Agamemnon. And book 16, in which the Achaeans are at a point of desperation and Patroclus goes out because of that and dies. A long series of episodes in the intervening books that we described last week rather quickly, many battle scenes mixed with several other things, including the humorous scene of Hera seducing Zeus in order to get his attention off of the battle to distract him. But no more distractions. Now at the opening of book 16, it is desperate. The Trojans have broken through the Greek defenses down at the ships. The offensive team, the Achaeans, the Greeks, are in the process of being humiliated, not to mention possibly wiped out by the Trojans who have fought them all the way back to their ships, broken through the defenses, 
and are beginning to set fire to the ships. Only giant Ajax, standing on board those ships, wielding his huge pike single-handedly, prevents it from being a total disaster, a total rout. But it's in grave danger. The, the whole war, not just the battle, but the whole war hangs in the balance, and it is frightening. Therefore, Patroclus, at the opening of Book 16, comes into the tent of Achilles, weeping. Here we are again with the cultural difference that I run up against in class, where students ask, why do these guys cry all the time? But to the Greeks, this was not unmanly by any means. In any moment of strong emotion, men were just as much allowed to cry as women, and this was certainly a moment of intense emotion. So Patroclus runs in with tears running down his face. He does get a bit mocked by his friend Achilles, who says, why in tears, Patroclus? Like a girl, like a baby running after her mother. What's wrong with you? But Patroclus explains he has good reason. He reiterates what we already know, but Achilles does not, that the battle is going poorly, in part because of the three major players which he names in this opening, brought out, brought out of the battlefield with minor but serious injuries. Diomedes brought down by an archer, Odysseus wounded, and Agamemnon to the famous spearman. And what Patroclus begs at the opening is, okay, you won't go back out, I accept that, but let me go into battle, and not only that, let me take your armor and wear it. Not only because it's great armor, no doubt, but because of a stratagem that at least temporarily, they'll think it's you come back into the battle, and you are so terrifying to them that this will produce a temporary rout of the Trojans, enough at least to give us some breathing space and maybe turn the tide that way. And the awful lines that follow. So he pleaded, lost in his own great innocence, condemned to beg for his own death and brutal doom. Because the narrator knows what the audience already knew in the traditional setting in which the poem was recited, the Patroclus will go out and he will die killed at the hands of Hector. However, Achilles does listen, not just because it's his friend, but because they have reached now the point of the criterion that he had established clear back in the original quarrel. I will not, no matter what happens, I will not even think of returning to the battle until the Trojans are actually setting fire to our ships. And now that has come. 
So he says, okay, you can go out and you can wear my armor, but conditions. First, once you have whipped the enemy from the fleet, you must come back, Patroclus. In other words, you must not do two things. You must not try to take Troy on your own, and you must not go up against Hector. You must not go up against Hector because, frankly, my friend, you're just not good enough. Which is not an insult, it is simply true. Hector is the second greatest warrior on that battlefield after Achilles, and Patroclus simply isn't up to that level. No one except Achilles really is. In addition to the fact that Hector is at the moment experiencing his eristia, that untranslatable Greek term, usually translated for want of anything better as excellence, but really it means the moment when a warrior or someone in any form of competition excels himself, goes beyond his own limits, and has his moment of greatest glory. Hector is at this moment experiencing that. Aristia. So do not go up against Hector. And by the way, don't also go try to take Troy on your own for a rather different reason. You will only make my glory that much less. <laughs> the heroic code, friendship is all very well, but the heroic code takes precedence over anything and everything. And I must have that glory. I forbid anyone else to have it. So out he goes. And it is a moment so climactic that the poet, Homer, or whoever it really was, invokes the muses yet again here in the middle of the scene Sing to me now, you muses, you who hold Olympus's vaulting halls, how fire was first pitched onto Achilles' ships. It's a moment so crucial that the need is there to call yet again upon the muses for inspiration. And at that point, we go back into a lot of battle scenes that, as usual, both for want of time and, frankly, want of interest, you've seen one battle, you've seen them all in the Iliad, at least to a degree. But it goes on and on and on through books 16 and 17. But the focus is on the career of Patroclus, who does manage to produce the effect that he wanted. In fact, he does quite well. He pretty much routes the Trojans, pushes them back towards their own walls again. But there's a lot of battle that goes on in the process, in the midst of which is one very famous moment it is one of the most commented upon passages in the entire Iliad because of what it brings forth about the nature 
of fate or Moira in the Iliad. And that is the death of the Trojan warrior Sarpedon. Sarpedon is about to be killed in this melee, and Zeus, who is watching this, looks on in anguish. Sarpedon is actually his own son by one of the innumerable women that Zeus has had to do with. If you wonder why Hera is always bad-tempered, there is one good reason for that. But at any rate, Sarpedon is the son of Zeus. And yet, as Zeus says at this moment, he is fated to die at this moment. Fate has decreed. And fate overrules even the will of the gods, even the will of Zeus, the king of the gods. However, what we learn in this scene is interesting. He speaks to Hera, described accurately as his sister and his wife, which is true, normal rules don't apply on Mount Olympus. His sister and his wife Hera, he says, my cruel fate, my Sarpedon, the man I love the most, my own son, doomed to die at the hands of Menetius' son Patroclus. My heart is torn in two as I try to weigh all this. Shall I pluck him up now while he's still alive and set him down in the rich green land of Lycia, which is Sarpedon's homeland, far from the war at Troy and all its tears, or beat him down at Patroclus' hands at last? And the reason fate is mentioned a number of times in the Iliad, but what's striking here is that Zeus apparently does have the capacity to contravene the orders of fate. He could save Sarpedon. Fate is not so all-powerful that Zeus could do nothing, but Hera gives a definitive response Dread majesty, son of Kronos, what are you saying? A man, a mere mortal, his doom sealed long ago? You'd set him free from all the pains of death? Do as you please, Zeus, but none of the deathless gods will ever praise you. And I tell you this, take it to heart, I urge you. If you send Sarpedon home living still, beware then surely some other god will want to sweep his own son clear of the heavy fighting too. Zeus could act against fate, but out of a need for order, if you do this, it will be anarchy, it will be chaos, every deity trying to save his or her own favorite, and Zeus exceeds out of a need for some kind of social order to go on. And Sarpedon does die in the battle. And the first of several enormous fights goes on to recover the body. 
okay if someone in a modern war is killed, of course his comrades would try to recover the body out of love and respect. But these battles over corpses reach a point of near surreal absurdity in the extent to which they go on. There is human regard at work here, but there's also the heroic code. There always is. Not just the body, but in particular the armor was a war prize. So what they are battling for, the enemy wants the body, particularly for that armor. It was only the beginning of the Bronze Age, the skill to make this armor was still new and rare, and those suits of armor were really hard to come by, and so there was a desperate attempt, partly for prestige, partly for the sake of the usefulness of that armor, to acquire it on both sides. And this, talk about black humor, this battle gets so intense People begin dying on both sides, and bodies, more corpses, keep falling. And finally, they cover up the body of Sarpedon so effectively laid over with more and more corpses that they lose the body. They can't find it temporarily. Not even a hawk-eyed scout could still make out Sarpedon the man's magnificent body covered over head to toe, buried under a mass of weapons, blood, and dust. But they still kept swarming round and round the corpse, like flies in a sheepfold, buzzing over the brimming pails in the first spring days when the buckets flood with milk. Homer did have a rather grim sense of humor in the Iliad. The warriors are like flies buzzing around buckets of milk trying to get that body back. At any rate, the battle does succeed in halting the rout of the Achaeans and in fact reversing the direction of the battle to some degree. However, at the cost of the death of Patroclus, because he does not listen to the instructions that he had been given. There is a line that occurs at this moment in this book, translated by uh, Robert Fagels as fighting beyond their fates. It's a famous phrase in Greek, hypermoron, to go beyond your fate means to cross a line. You can see here the outlines of what would later sharpen into the patterns of Greek tragedy a couple of centuries later on the Athenian stage where the tragic hero goes beyond a line. Aristotle's poetics spoke of a tragic flaw, but probably a more comprehensive way of describing what leads to a tragedy is 
the stepping beyond a certain boundary. Mortals may not go beyond a certain point. And they make a mistake. And Patroclus does this. And the gods intervene. He's not only killed, but this happens again during the battle between Hector and Achilles, the great showdown of them all. The gods cheat. To us, it's just absolutely an outrage. No sense of play on the part of the Olympians at all. But this is how it was. The will of the gods may not be opposed. Apollo rips off Patroclus' armor, that armor that belongs to Achilles, and therefore Patroclus is wounded by another character, Euphorbus, and polished off, really, by Hector, who acquires the armor of Achilles. And that's it. In the very final passages of Book 16, Patroclus dies. Now, a second fight for a second body, because now they're fight, fighting for the body and the armor of Patroclus. Hector gets that armor, but there's still the, the battle for the body goes on and on. And Book 17 goes back to the business of indeterminate battle. This person kills this person. This other person goes up against this warrior and so forth and so on. And we can pass over much of that rather quickly. Achilles, of course, does not know what has happened. Somebody has to tell him. And boy, is that a thankless task, of course. Nonetheless, it has to be done. It takes all the way into Book 18 for this to happen. Nonetheless, it has to happen, and it will be such a shock that it will finally shake Achilles' strange mood. In Book 16, there is a passage, again, famous and often quoted, this time in a negative way. There are several accounts in ancient commentators, not just modern critics, in which the writers are scandalized by a remark that Achilles makes at the very end of his speech, granting Patroclus the right to go out and battle and wear his armor, he ends that speech saying to Patroclus, Oh, would to God, Father Zeus, Athena, and Lord Apollo, would to God not one of all these Trojans could flee his death, not one, no Argive either, but we could stride from the slaughter, we could bring down Troy's hallowed crown of towers toppling down ar around us, you and I alone. It's a weird, disturbing passage, and as I say, was disturbing even to some of the ancient commentators. 
imagining as an attractive scenario that both armies were entirely dead and there's only the two of us standing there like really some sort of Nazi Kutudamarong scenario man is not in a good frame of mind he has been isolated too long he is not to put it mildly in other ways like Vladimir Putin but isolation breeds a divorce from reality and that has happened now and it happened to Achilles and he is about to be rudely shocked out of that delusionary state because at the opening of book 18 Antilochus good friend of Achilles comes into the tent this poor man is the one who has the thankless task of delivering the news to Achilles Patroclus has fallen they're fighting over his corpse Hector has your arms and another cinematic moment a brilliantly visual moment takes place Achilles response is both hands clawing the ground for soot and filth he poured it over his head fouled his handsome face and down below that as he weeps Antilochus kneeling near weeping uncontrollably clutched Achilles hands as he wept his proud heart out for fear he would slash his throat with an iron blade. Vivid scene. The pouring of soot and filth over his face is powerful in its own right. The strangeness of it is actually notwithstanding because that was a ritual gesture of grief and mourning not some individual psychological response but the really vivid human moment is Antilochus himself weeping uncontrollably holding Achilles wrists afraid that Achilles in a paroxysm of sudden grief would spin out of control and commit suicide a terrible moment and Achilles wailing penetrates all the way to the bottom of the sea and is heard by his mother Thetis the Nereid the sea nymph and she comes to her, her son in his hour of greatest need and with her come her entire troop of Nereids another famous passage one of the famous epic catalogs of the Iliad is that these sea nymphs come out of the sea and they are all in a catalog that goes on for about 12-15 lines they're all given names this is epic catalog for you there's no need for them to have names they play no personalized role in this this is their cameo and that's it they are a weeping chorus and yet the desire to pile up these catalogs is so great 
that the names just keep coming. One of the interesting things in Robert Fagel's translation that I have used in teaching is that unlike some of the more traditional translators who leave the names as Greek names, he translates them because they all mean something. And you get a combination of the exotic and the what's this all about in these names because there's a, a kind of a pattern to them. Uh, roughly half of them, since these are sea nymphs, have some sort of marine connotation, something to do with sea and water. Fair Isle, Shadowy Cavern, Mist and Spindrift, Race with the Waves, Headlands Hope, Safe Haven, and so forth. The other half sound like they belong in one of the strip clubs up in the north of Cleveland. Glimmer of Honey, Suave and Soothing, Master's Lovely Consort, rather naughty sounding names. Make of it what you will, nevertheless we get this amazing catalog of the nymphs whose purpose is to mourn. The silver cave was simmering, shimmering full of sea nymphs, all in one mourning chorus beating their breasts, with Thetis, Achilles' mother, comforting her son. And now what? She repeats the prophecy about her son. You are doomed to a short life, my son, because she knows at this point that Achilles will go out into the battle. And although he will win that battle, if he goes back into the battle, great glory, but short life. He will die shortly thereafter himself. So she is mourning, but problem here. He has no armor. Hector has his armor. And okay, you may be a great warrior, but you can't go out in the battle in your underwear. Now what? Which leads to one of the extraordinary interludes of the Iliad. Mom to the rescue, yet again, she will go up again to Mount Olympus and call in another favor, this time to the god Hephaestus, the smith, who has made all of the armor, all of the weapons, all of the rich designs and ornaments of the gods up there. She will go to the workshop of Hephaestus in book 18. And that is a wonderful moment, quite unlike all the battle scenes going on down below. In the second half of book 18, she travels up there and we get this moment of what is almost like Bronze Age science fiction which is not there just for the sake of the marvelous, but because the art of smelting bronze, newly discovered, 
seemed half magical. Early technology often was confused with, or at least fused with, magic and the supernatural. And we see that here in the marvelous things that Thetis sees in the workshop of Hephaestus. And she does manage to get this wonderful armor for her son. And then the book ends with the, again, magnificent epic catalog description, not only of the armor, but of the decorations and scenes on Achilles' shield. And this goes on and on and on, and the battle simply pauses at this moment. We leave all together to go back to Mount Olympus. We are not going to have an immediate climax to this. We know what's coming. The dominoes are being knocked over. Achilles in Book 9 refused to return to battle, which leads to the moment of desperation, which leads to Patroclus going out, getting himself killed, which leads to Achilles' return, which will lead to the death of Hector, and after the Iliad ends, to the death of Achilles. We watch it happening. It is fated it will happen. And we will take up there with the workshop of Hephaestus and the wonderful armor and shield of Achilles when we return next time and then we will watch Achilles don that armor and finally return to the battle approaching the great climax of the entire poem next time.